Welcome to the New Books Network. It's a major understatement to say that there's a great deal of concern in many parts of the world regarding the threat of authoritarian rule and the deterioration of support for liberal procedures and democratic values. Those concerns were very much in evidence in advance of the most recent Italian prime minister election, which brought to the prime minister's office a strident conservative and opponent of European unification in Italy, namely Georgia Meloni. And of course, these fears are rife in the contemporary United States, where it seems as though the Supreme Court is perhaps seemingly likely to reject the authority of states, of of federal states, to remove Donald Trump from the ballot on account of his role in the chaos of January 6, 2021, when various forces sought to forestall the legal transfer of power and to keep Trump in office, despite the fact that he had lost the 2020 election. My name's John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate School of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. We're fortunate to have with us today Professor Marla Stone of Occidental College in Los Angeles, where she has just returned after three years as the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of the Humanities at the American Academy in Rome, a specialist in the history of fascism and in questions of dictatorship and genocide in the modern era. Her work emphasizes the relationships among culture, politics, and the state in the 20th century. Professor Stone is author of the book, The Fascist Revolution, Society, Politics, and Culture in Mussolini's Italy, published by Bedford St. Martins in 2012, and of the, the book, The Patron State, Culture and Politics in Fascist Italy, which was published in 1998 by Princeton University Press and was awarded the Howard Marraro Prize for Best Book in Italian History by the Society for Italian Historical Studies in in the year 2000. She's currently finishing a book-length study of the role of anti-communism in 20th century Italian politics, tentatively titled The Enemy, the Politics and Propaganda of Anti-Communism in Italy. And perhaps one full disclosure, she and I authored a piece in Huffington Post a number of years ago likening Donald Trump to Silvio Berlusconi, Italy's recently deceased billionaire populist prime minister. Thanks for being with us today, Marla Stone. Thank you, John. Thank you for that lovely introduction. To have you. So, I mean, it's fantastic to have somebody who's just spent so much time in Italy and been there basically through this election and through the, you know, ascendance of the prime minister to that office. Um, and so I'm very curious, you know, you had a kind of a ringside seat for the ascendance of this p- political movement, the Brothers of, Ital- of Italy, the Fratelli d'Italia, uh, that you know, basically openly professed and embraced its ties to his historical fascism. So I'm very curious, you know, how is it going in Italy uh, under those auspices? 
Oh, thank you, John. It's a, it's a great question. I think the best way to think about it is almost in layers or levels. So when Georgia Maloney's party, Fratelli d'Italia, won 28% of the vote in the parliamentary elections of September 2023, there was certainly a ripple of fear that went through the center and really what remains of the left uh, in Italy to this day. And people were having visions and fears of a return to sort of historic classical fascism because we have to be honest, Fratelli d'Italia is an inheritor party of the MSI, the Movimento Sociale Italiano, uh, the Italian social movement, which after World War II, when the fa fascist party was banned, became, saw itself very clearly as the inheritor party. And Brothers of Italy, Maloney's party still uses the symbol of the flame, uh, La Fiamma, the tricolor flame. So they are proud of that lineage. And it was terrifying to many people. And she got into office. And so far, um, in many ways, it has been a normal parliamentary government. And then in others, there has been this uh, awareness of the fascist past and of her nationalist populist agenda. So certainly in terms of foreign policy, uh, she's presenting herself and her party as a traditional conservative party. Um, she has pivoted on her position on Ukraine, supporting aid to Ukraine, celebrating uh, the, the Ukrainian state and the like. And I think what's behind that actually is less Ukraine than she has taken on the mantle. And this is also true. Uh, in some meetings with China and some of the relationship with the with African countries, there's a long-term feeling in Italy, this goes back to the 19th century, of not being taken seriously as a great power, as a player in the international community. And so she's playing that card, you know, a little bit of the strong man, a little bit of the nationalist who's going to make uh, the other countries take Italy seriously, and that you know, she can lead this kind of uh, coalition of right wing parties and governments in Europe uh, in terms of foreign policy. So that part, I don't think, has been a huge shift or a huge surprise. Um, and in a lot of a lot of economic policy, she has not surprised anybody. In fact, um, she is a protector of the of the social state, of the welfare state. And I think it's important. Uh, I talk to my students a lot about this, and I think it's important for listeners on your podcast to realize that these European nationalist, populist, illiberal parties by and large support the welfare state, that this is what historic fascism in Europe was. So one of the first things she did is called for an increase in the pensions uh, for retired people. Um, and of course, it makes a great contrast to the American far right in which you get primarily sort of hatred and resentment and anger towards the state. Yeah. But but not exactly to Trump. I mean, Trump is not a traditional conservative and certainly not a traditional Republican in the sense that he was a defender of Social Security and Medicare. It's one of the things the, you know, the traditional uh, Republican establishment has not been very enthusiastic about. So that's part of, I think, his appeal to working class people. Mm. I mean, whatever else you might want to say about him, part of the reason that they embrace him, I think, is that he... You know, he came out right away uh, the early stages of the 2016 campaign of of defense saying he was not going to cut Social Security and Medicare. 
That's true. But he doesn't really, he's not running on that now. It's much more pivoted to the border. But but anyway, the point being that so in domestic politics, she's protecting the social state. Uh, now, the shifts where it's clearly a right wing government is, I would say, in two areas, certainly culture wars and immigration policy. Right. She is very much. Uh, seeing herself as wanting to crack down, sees immigration as a threat. So she ran, you know, her famous speech, I am Georgia, I am Italian, I am Catholic, I am a woman. So she is the discourse of protecting traditional culture and society is there. And then it, you know, attaches to her anti-immigrant politics. So she has uh, promoted and gotten past laws, cracking down on NGOs on the rescue boats in the Mediterranean, instead of being able to float in the Mediterranean looking for uh, ships in trouble. They can take one ship and then they have to go to a farther port. They can't go back to Sicily. So she's criminalizing NGOs if they have any infraction. And then she's beginning to talk about, this is the thing perhaps I find most frightening, an American model of immigrant detention. She wants to start using immigrant prisons and, you know, deportations without without due process. To the, you know, according to EU law, according to uh, immigration policy in the EU, you cannot lock in migrants. So they, the welcome centers are open and people can go into the local town. She would like to put an end to that and have it be much more like uh, American immigrant prisons. So, we see the, the far right uh, imprint, certainly in immigration policy and then culture wars. She has been replacing museum directors. Um, she has been replacing opera house directors. So getting at this kind of, you know, cultural left enemy. Right. So this is a standard play across the board from Hungary to the United States. The culture has been infected by a kind of woke society. Uh, part of her. Uh, the culture war is she's anti, uh, she's anti-gay, she's anti-surrogacy, she calls for traditional Italian support for the traditional Italian family, um, which is, of course, again, like Trump, very ironic, because she's not in a traditional Italian family uh, by any means, and her boyfriend got into all kinds of trouble and misbehavior. Um but so I think thinking about it on levels uh, is really important and, and that she's playing mostly the social the social and cultural game in terms of far right politics. Now, also, we do have to keep in mind, though, she's been strategic so she can present herself as a traditional politician. But she has people in her cabinet like La Russa, the um, the interior minister, who is an explicit, you know, a far right extremist. He uh, on April 25th, the, the day of the liberation, the day in which Mussolini was killed and fascism ended April 25th, 1945, is a holiday in Italy, less so every year. And he was interviewed on Giorno della Liberazione uh, and asked if he was an anti-fascist. And he hemmed and he hawed and he, he didn't really answer it, right? He couldn't say he was an anti-fascist. And he has said all kinds of uh, fascist-like things. But I mean, I mean, the, you know, the usefulness of the fascism label is, I think, something that really needs some discussion. And, you know, it became, I think, an American left discourse, just this label for anything you kind of didn't like that was from the right. Um, but, you know, historically, as you well know, it meant something very distinctive and very 
disruptive, but it came out of a situation of, you know, the world of uh, the First World War. And there was a lot of, you know, stuff about fascism and national socialism that had to do with violence. So I wonder, I mean, okay, this guy hems and haws about whether he's a fascist or an anti-fascist, but is anybody, you know, recommending that we go beat up certain kinds of, you know, people in the society as they did in, in the 1920s? Well, that that's a great question. So, no, nobody in the government is saying that, but there are links between Brothers of Italy and far-right extremist violent groups like Casa Pound, right? So Italy did have, it's January 6th. They had it on September 6th, uh, uh, after January 6th, in which Casa Pound and, and various neo-Nazi groups attacked the main uh, union headquarters, the largest union had and has its national headquarters in Rome, and they attacked the building, uh, set it on fire. Some of them were wearing costumes very similar to the January 6th insurrectionists. One of them had uh, one of those hats with horns on. So they, and that I think is a really interesting phenomenon, this kind of transnational uh, extreme right, uh, that they were trying to copy what they had seen on TV of of the uh you know, insurrection in the Capitol. So they're there. That group is there. And like Trump's, I think Maloney and certainly LaRusse's relationship to those groups are similar to Trump's relationship to those groups. They're there. They disavow them, um, but they have a connection to them. So tell us more about, you know, how, how do the Italians think about Trump? I mean, you know, when we were writing our piece on Berlusconi, I mean, I don't know that Berlusconi was any great big fan of Trump's. Uh, as I, you know, as I recall, it, um, you know, partially Trump was too boorish and, you know, more outrageously, you know, anti-feminist or whatever you want to call it than 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 he would than he Berlusconi. Was. That's hard to believe, you know, Berlusconi and his bunga bunga parties and his. Of course. Well, it was all it was all in good fun with him. I mean, with Trump. There was always, you know, abuse of women involved and that sort of thing. So it's a very different kind of sensibility, it seems to me. I mean, for for Berlusconi, it was, you know, it was fun. You know, sure, let's import these 18-year-old women to parties and pay them whatever we paid them and have fun with them. But Trump wasn't getting away with anything like that. I mean, it was much more, much more nasty and mean-spirited, really. Yeah, though we don't find that out till later. But but yeah, I don't know. I I still think Trump and Berlusconi have have a lot in common. Though interesting, I have shifted. I remember when you did an event right after Trump was elected, and is Trump a fascist? And we all said, well, no, not quite. He doesn't have an armed movement. You know, he he's not advocating violence and all of these things. Um, and he wasn't at that point advocating. Uh, you know, as he's saying now, he'll be a dictator for one day and sort of not advocating any anti-constitutional moves. Uh, I think now he's moved much closer to wanting to amend or abrogate the Constitution, for sure. In terms of Italians thinking about Trump, you know, it's hard to say. I, I met a cross-section of Italians who think so many things about American politics are absurd. I mean, the main thing that they they talk about and that made me think about see America in a different way is the gun situation 
you know, Italians will really sincerely ask, why is it people go into schools in America and shoot at school children? They can't figure out. And then why don't you do something about it? Why don't you ban? Why are there weapons of war, you know, for sale in American cities? Uh, that's the thing that's most shocking to them. I think they're scared of Trump, that what Trump could do to destabilize uh for sure, for sure. I think Italians are very worried about the political future uh, on a lot of levels. And, and you know, the Italian economy is quite stagnant. Salaries are very com- compressed. You know, Maloney wants to raise the pension. The pension payments are very, very shockingly low. I think that's the main issue confronting Italians right now is cost of living. And old age, that yeah. is to say the demographic situation, which is not very uh, optimistic for, you know, the Italian, the older Italian population, because there simply aren't enough younger people to support it. It's this dependency uh, ratio, bad, I think it's called the dependency ratio is just very, uh, you know, doesn't look good for older people. But of course, you know, people keep bringing up that one way to resolve kind of problem with the with the fertility rates and dependent dependency ratios is to let in more immigrants but but that doesn't seem like the kind of response that you're getting from Georgia Maloney so talk a little bit about her you know view of these problems i mean you've said she's very punitive basically in orientation and i guess plans to throw a lot of people out if she gets the chance just as trump has said he will do uh, but, you know, we're in a somewhat better situation when it comes to immigration and fertility rates. But, uh, you know, is is Italy going to survive? I mean, yeah, I, it's a, that's... I asked you, is the eternal city going to survive? Yeah. Well, it will survive. It'll be quite different. And you're right that, uh, you know, the birth rate is below replacement. Um, there is a need for, you know, a bigger workforce. There's a, absolutely, and as you, ra- as you say, to, to support the social state, you need more people. Um, well, this is where, where the racism and prejudice, and it is there in Italian culture across the political spectrum. You know, there there is, it has been a white homogenous country for a very long time, and it has been a struggle for Italians to think about a multiracial democracy, and they're they're quite far from it. At this point, and then the contradiction between, you know, Maloney wants to pass subsidies or has passed subsidies for Italians that have um, more children, but doesn't want to increase, uh, you know, immigration and 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 allow people to come and work in Italy. So it's yeah, I think there's a there's a racism attached to that for sure. But the eternal city will survive. And <clears throat> given conditions in America, more and more Americans are coming to live in Rome. Uh, you know, Rome is still cost of living wise, much less than Berlin or Paris. So there's certainly a growing expat community in Rome. Um, Rome is also becoming much more of a tourist center than it used to be. It's becoming more more like Venice. But so you'll get this, you know, increasingly in cities like Rome, Florence and Venice. Italians don't live in the center. Right? The center is this kind of precious tourist, almost Disneyland type place with pizza shops and ice cream shops. Right. I've heard about that. As you know, I have a daughter who's spent some time being a tourist in Rome. And I I don't think there was any ice cream left after she left town. But um, I'm sort of curious, um, you know, what you would say about, I, I guess I have this, you know, sort of 
optimistic reading of the Catholic Church here in one respect, which is that the Catholic Church historically was essentially a reflex of the Roman imperial bureaucracy, Mm. right? It was built along the same lines and it had this universalistic kind of claim. And, you know, I mean, all roads lead to Rome and there was a kind of idea of citizenship after the Edict of Caracalla, if I recall Mm. correctly. Oh, good Roman history. And yeah, everybody, you know, within the Roman defense perimeter was a citizen and was to be protected by and you know i mean pope francis is uh was selected it's i think generally thought to because the future of the catholic church is really in the what we used to call the third world so i'm just curious you know we used to talk about uh italy as this country with two churches right the catholic and the communist Mm -hmm. and uh you know both of those were anti-racist kind of forces it seems to me does that have any impact? Does that, you know, make a difference that Francis well, is purely an anti-racist? Well, the the communist church is gone, completely disappeared. Um, and, you know, that is part of the problem. There is no real left that, you know, the, that uh, Matteo Renzi took the Democratic Party into a kind of Clintonian party. And that space on the left disappeared and like in the United States, a lot of working class Italians moved to the populist right. You know, either the Five Star Movement, the Salvini, the League Movement, or finally to Brothers of Italy. Uh, so you have the disappearance of this key element of identity and worldview in Italy, and I think that that has that has had a huge political impact. Um, in terms of racism, yeah, Pope Francis. Is is an anti-racist and wants to open the church in a lot of ways, but he's not Italian, right? And there are a lot of people in the church and also, uh, you know, outside the church that are not not completely on board with him. And in terms of, you know, how to describe Italian racism, it's all I'd almost call it underexposed racism. That Italians have lived in this homogenous society for so long that they say things and think things that they think are not offensive, that they think they're just observing, you know, things that would, would not, would be found very offensive in the United States. It, it, it there, ha- there needs to be a way to kind of introduce Italians to the idea of diversity. They're very long way, far away from it. Well, I, and that's interesting. I mean, uh, of course, you know, I'm sure it's true. You're right. Um, and I can remember seeing, you know, a, a guy who looked as though he was from, you know, Africa, sub-Saharan Africa on, I think that was on Sicily 25 years ago or something. And I thought, what is this guy doing here? I mean, he was trying to sell, you know, little packets of, of tissues and things like that. I thought, how is this guy going to survive? But in any case, I mean, what you're describing is true in the relatively recent past, but, you know, apropos the issue of the Roman Empire, I mean, Augustine of Hippo was from what is today Tunisia, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And, you know, so it was a big place with a lot of people who looked presumably very different. I mean, does that legacy, well, how did that legacy, which... Yeah, I, I think know, there are a lot of and legacies that have come since then. And but let's not romanticize the Roman Empire. Most of the pe- most inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves. Mm-hmm. So it was a 
deeply hierarchical society. Yes, the division was not by ethnicity necessarily, but it was certainly by social status. Um, and it's I think not my life... purpose to, it's not my purpose to romanticize the Roman Empire. <laughs> But just to right. try to get a sense of what was, but what has happened? But what has happened in between? You know, the cre creation of the Italian nation state in the 1860s, the attempts at imperialism at the end of the 19th century, another another failed attempt at colonies under fascism. So, you know, Italian experience of other peoples and of immigration has been quite limited, right? You know, the, the colonies were quite small. Um, certainly there was interaction between the metropole and Libya and Ethiopia, and there are Italians of Ethiopian descent, Asmarian, Libyan descent, for sure. But in the 1950s in Libya, uh, Italian citizens were thrown out. So, you know, the connection to Libya now is really just an economic and political one. Right. So, okay. So more, you know, on contemporary issues, um, you know, I am curious, you said a little bit about this, but I'd be curious if you could say a little more about, you know, Meloni's transformation in, in regard to the issue of the invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, you know, she had before the election, she had been kind of pro-Russian, whatever exactly that means, but, you know, not particularly critical of Putin's invasion. And since getting into office, she seems to have changed her tune. And I'm wondering, you know, whether you could say a little bit about that sure. and why that's sure. I mean, I read it as purely strategic. I don't think she's suddenly has a love of the Ukrainian people. I think she realized in solidifying her position as prime minister, her relationship with the United States and her relationship with the, you know, other EU uh, leaders, that this would look good. I, I, I don't think it's a philosophical, ideological position. I think it's, as I said, Italy's position in in the world community, in the in the EU and relationship with the United States. And perhaps a disillusionment with Putin, for sure, and also a fear of a spreading war. Italy is not that far. Um, and a fear of Ukrainian refugees ending up, I think, a very a very calculated position, for sure. Right. So, and I guess the other question, you know, which in some ways is more at the heart of your work, um, is the question of the left in Italy. I mean, we always thought of the Italian left as, you know, a certain kind of liberal communism or something like that, and a kind of beacon for left Western, uh, Western, you know, democratic countries. Uh, but you're saying basically it's sort of gone. And I wonder how does that change or does it change? Right. Well, you know, the Italian left went through similar things after the fall of the Berlin Wall that other lefts went through, though the Italian Communist Party had been the strongest Western European Communist Party, winning in the 70s at certain points 30% of the vote. Uh, so as you said at the beginning, a key part of Italian life, a key place of identity and politics for so many people. And then with the transition in the early 90s of the Italian political system, the collapse of the Christian Democratic Party, the collapse of the Socialist Party, the collapse of historic communism, uh, the Communist Party moved more and more to the center, eventually becoming the Democratic Party, leaving behind a couple of splinter communist, traditional communist parties like Rifondazione Comunista that itself disappears 
uh, by the late 90s. Now, what has happened very recently in the last year and a half in reaction after after uh, the di near disappearance of the Democratic Party in the September 2023 elections, uh, like the Labor Party, they elected a new chair of the Demo Italian Democratic Party, this woman, Ellie Schlein, quite young, in her 30s, of, uh, with an American Jewish father, academic, I think he's an economist, and an, and an Italian mother. Um, and she she has the politics of uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. There's a big concern in the Democratic Party that she doesn't represent the base, but she is very much a social Democrat um, in contrast to the previous chairs of the Italian Democratic Party. So it's an experiment. And I think it's an attempt to revive the left along, you know, to return to that message of trying to get the working class back, uh, to return to a message, a message of economic justice and and the beginnings of a message of racial justice. And can, can you say a little bit more about the sort of racial transformation, if that's not too big a word of Italian everyday life at this point? I mean, is this a big part of life outside of Rome or Milan or not really? Not really. I mean, it's it's what you see is, you know, people of color working in restaurants or, as you mentioned, you know, selling things at the beach. Uh, Non-white Italians have not been really integrated in a visible or sort of uh, through through Italian society, though you do see I, I think this is a sign of, of perhaps hopefully where things are going. You see on Italian television, often commercials. Uh, for pasta or ice cream, uh, where you see a multiracial family. Yeah, and I always find that interesting because the commercials are way ahead of the actual demographics of Italian society. Um, so I think that there's a desire for this in, cert in certain segments of the population, for sure. And you do see more people of color on television. Some of the newscasters um, are biracial or Italian-African. But the general assessment that seems to me that you're giving me is, you know, the things are not particularly optimistic. I mean, it's not to say they can resist uh, the influx of, you know, unfamiliar populations forever and ever, but they're not necessarily very enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I think there's a long way to go. And, and I will also say there are incidents in the schools you know i knew several people who had put a number of people who put their kids in italian schools uh and some of these kids you know were non-white and had experienced racial incidents at school and i think this is also related uh to the maloney thing that like donald trump she has opened the door for italians to say things they wouldn't have maybe said five years ago you know the kids are hearing things at the kitchen table and then repeating them at school including anti-semitic comments there's been a real res resurgence or a real uh increase in anti-semitic incidents uh in italian culture in the schools at the soccer games so do you see Meloni as, you know, somebody who's going to be around? I mean, Berlusconi, it was in it was episodic, but he was around for a long time as the head of Italian politics. Is she going to be a I mean, she's very young, as you've already pointed out. Yeah. She could be doing this for a long time. She could. So far, she's played it very well. She's played it very well. Um, I mean, who knows? Right. You can't predict the future, but she is a very smart politician. And I think she'd like to be around for a long time. And I think she'd like to be the leader of a kind of European 
uh, far right, a new European populist nationalist right. You know, as you said at the beginning, she has a good relation with Orban. Um, so I think that's her vision. Absolutely. So we should get to know her because she might be around for a long time. And of course, the irony uh, that, you know, the first female Italian prime minister is from a far right party, from a party that really, you know, terrified people for many years in its earlier iterations. Well, this is somewhat like the kinds of things that, you know, somebody like Helmut Kohl could do when he was chancellor of Germany. But the left, even though it was more identified, I'm trying to think of the example, um, but, you know, it was something that he could get away with. But somebody on the left would never have survived it because it would have been attacked by the right. Right. So it's the same kind of dynamic. Maybe she can do things because her credentials, you know, as being on the right are more or less unassailed or unassailable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's quite to the far right of Helmut Kohl, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't mean to compare them in that sense, but just in the sense that, you know, a certain po politician can do certain things as long. Uh, oh, I'm, well, I'm thinking of Nixon's, you know, whatever rapprochement with China. Yeah. In the 50s, the question was who lost China? Right. Well, Richard Nixon could do that because his conservative credentials were basically, you know, in good standing. I mean, he also ended up supporting things like affirmative action and national health insurance and things that make him, you know, seem an odd conservative to us today. But nonetheless. OK, well, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Professor Marla Stone of Occidental College for her insights about the fascist past in Italy and its bearing on politics in contemporary Europe. I also want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for letting us use his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm -hmm.